I, before, we, before we start, I just want to give a, a, a little word uh, on one of the lyrics in the worship song. There was that, that part, uh, kind of a bridge of sorts that says, you keep getting better. And I just, I just want to make a comment about that. Um, what that means is we keep realizing he is good. We learn more of his goodness. He doesn't actually get better because he's already better. I mean, he's already good. You, you know, it's, like, it's not like we're saying, hey, God, you're doing a better job of being God. That's not what we're saying. We're, 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 we're saying, I, am, I have realized more of your goodness. It's like, you remember that scene in Prince Caspian where uh, Lucy runs into Aslan and she sees him again for the first time, it's been a long time, and she goes, Aslan, you're bigger. And he, and he says, he says uh, no, you're bigger. And, and she says, you haven't grown? And he says, no, uh, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. In other words, Aslan's already big and he's already great, right? And it, Jesus is good. God is good. He's not getting better and like he's getting increasing, right? It's just the more we grow, the more we see his goodness, we recognize it more. And so we can say you keep getting better. And what we mean is I keep realizing that you're good, right? Just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page with that. So Diving right now into the message, I want you to fill in a blank for me. I'm going to say a sentence, and you fill in the blank. Don't say it out loud, but please answer honestly. Here it is. My number one goal in life is, fill in the blank. My number one goal in life is, I want you to think about this, and I want you to be honest about it. And we've been in this series of messages that we've called What to Wear. And we're looking at this beautiful text in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And we've got this chart uh, where it kind of gives you, this is the whole three verses. And you can memorize the entire three verses in Colossians 3, 12 to 14 if you just remember this chart. And by the way, I think memorizing scripture is a super important thing to do. And so here's what it says. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... And we'll stop right there. We, we've said every week during this series that he starts with who we are because behavior follows identity. The gospel is always prior to every ethical instruction in the New Testament. See, in, in the book of Colossians and in every letter in the New Testament, the doctrine comes first, then the instruction comes after that. So it's here's who you are, here's who God is, here's who you are, now here's how you should live. Right, Colossians 1 starts with that great passage in chapter 1, the, the chapter doesn't start, but in the middle of the chapter it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him and for him and through him, everything was made that was made. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it starts with, here's who Jesus is. Chapter 2, it says, in the cross, we were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive to God, and he's uh, taken, he's in the cross, what's happened is he, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authority, nailing, making a public spectacle of them, nailing them to the cross. So Paul says, first, Jesus is awesome. He's supreme. The cross and the work of redemption is supreme. And because of that, here's how you ought to live. The ought always comes out of the gospel. See, because of the good news of what Jesus has already accomplished, who he's already made us to be, because in the gospel, it's not just we get forgiveness of sins, but we get a new identity. Right? We're a new people. We're a new cre- If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So because of that, here's how you should treat people. Here's how you ought to act. Here's how you should dress. Since you are chosen, God picked you. You are holy. 
That means you're set apart. You are dearly loved. You might say, I don't really feel holy. I don't really feel dearly loved. It doesn't matter how you feel. I mean, I want to be respectful of your feelings, but the truth is, this is who you are. If you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, you are chosen, holy, dearly loved, and because of that, clothe yourselves. Here's what you should wear. Here's how you should dress. You're in the middle of a pandemic. Here's how you should dress. You should clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have for one another. Forgive as God forgave you. In other words, treat people the way Jesus treats you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Look, look, look at that verse again, the very one. And this is where we are in a series. Verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together, all together in perfect unity. He says, over all these, meaning this one is superior this is the most important thing. We, we've used the analogy as we've gone through the series that, that it, when it says it binds it all together, that love is like a belt that binds together all the virtues. And I think that's a good analogy to use. But I, I, in using that analogy, and every analogy breaks down, I don't want you to think that love is like, you know, some sort of accessory to your spiritual wardrobe. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes people wear a belt because it makes, it makes their waist look smaller. Or, or whatever. And, and that's not what love is here, okay? It's not an accessory that we're kind of going to accessorize our, our otherwise spiritual wardrobe. It's that it's the most important thing. Love is the virtue above all others. It's the most important thing. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the first statement that we made. My number one goal in life is... Now, however you fill in that blank will affect everything in your life. Okay, one author calls this your dominant life principle. And whatever that, what that means is your dominant life principle is, is your most important value that you run every decision through. Like when you have a choice to make. Do I marry this person? Do I not marry this person? Do I take this job? Do I not? Do I buy this house? Or, you know, do I, do I go to the lake today or do I go to church today? You know, every decision you make, you run it through your dominant life principle. You run it through this whatever you think is the most important. So, for example, if you fill this in with my number one goal in life is to be happy, then that's going to affect how you make decisions. Because your most important value is whatever, i got to be happy. That's my most important value. So if this decision makes me happy right now, that's what I'm going to do. You won't ask, is it right? Is it wrong? Does God say this? Does God? You'll just say, does it make me happy? If you fill that blank in with, with my number one goal in life is to be wealthy, that's going to affect your decisions. It's going to affect not just what job you take, but it's going to affect how you kind of treat your family as you're, you're pursuing wealth. If you say, my number one goal in life is to have success or maybe to have fun. See, if, if your number one controlling dominant life principle is just have fun, that's going to affect the decisions you make. And you're not going to choose to do things because God says so or it's right or it's wrong. You're going to choose because it, it's fun or, or, or if it's comfort. That, that's a lot in our culture right now. Here's, here's one you hear a lot today, uh, safety. My number one goal in life is safety. In fact, you see at a lot of places where you go to retail stores and they have a little sign, our number one priority is your safety. Have you, have you seen that lately? You know, especially in emails when they hey, come back, come back in and buy more clothes. Um, uh, our number one goal is your safety. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure it's making money. I think that's your number one goal. But I appreciate at least, you know, saying something about my safety. My number one goal in life is approval. 
if your number one goal in life is approval, you know what you're going to do? You're going you're gonna to constantly be changing. You're going to constantly be worrying about if this person likes you, if this person likes you, do, are they happy with me? Are they happy with me? And you're going to run back and forth, and it's going to all be about you. And in the words of Bette Midler's character in Beaches, enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> That's what happens when your number one, your number one thing in life is I need approval from people. My number one, so what is it? I want you to seriously think about it. What is your number one thing in life? My number one goal in life is, well, according to the Bible, your dominant life principle, the virtue above every other one that you're supposed to put on that should fill in this blank is love. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says this, let love be your highest goal. That verse is kind of hard to misunderstand, isn't it? It's like... Pretty, pretty clear. Let love be your highest goal. Why? Because 1 John 4, verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. One day, a, a lawyer came up to Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, great, a lawyer. Uh, no, he didn't say that. I just, I don't, I'm just making sure you guys are here and paying attention. Um, a lawyer comes up, and he's trying to trick him, and he says, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What? In other words, what is the very most important thing in life. And Jesus answers with these words. He says, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything hangs on love. And, and in parallel passage in, in uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus said this, there are no commands more important than these. In other words, according to Jesus, life is actually about love. We were put here on this planet to learn how to love. Love God first and then love our neighbor just like you love yourself. That's what he says. So here's the deal. This is the meaning of life. This is the purpose of life, the greatest virtue in life, the greatest command in life. Life is about loving God and loving each other. It's about relationship. Beyond that, Jesus said that, that love would actually be the proof. It would actually be the evidence that we were his disciples. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you go to church. Not, not if you pray every day, not, not, not if you read your Bible or if you tithe or anything else. If you love each other. So do this thought experiment. Just do this thought experiment with me. What if, what if somebody uh, moved to our uh, city from, I don't know, Wyoming? Is, is there anybody here from Wyoming? Oh, yeah, so we do have, so I, don't worry, I wasn't going to say anything negative about Wyoming. Just wondered. If we had anybody, you know, every once in a while, you know, I just wonder if there's somebody in here who's from Wyoming. Just, you know. Let's say somebody else from Wyoming moves to our fair city. Okay. And they want to know if we're disciples of Jesus. Like they're thinking about coming to New Life Church. Thinking, I, wonder, I wonder if these people love Jesus, if they, you know, like if, they, if they're really disciples of Jesus. And in order to kind of do a litmus test, they're like, you know, Jesus said, you, you, we'll know, people will know we're disciples if we love one another. So then what if this person from Wyoming just wants to see how we are at New Life, what if they go, what if they went to our social media feeds? 
would they go, these people are Jesus' disciples. Because I knew it was going to get quiet. It got so quiet. Paul said it this way, Romans 13, verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. It, it not just it represents the law, it sums up the law. It's the fulfillment of the law. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is, is even greater than faith and hope. It's the greatest virtue. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14 says this, do everything in love. What do you think that means? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you think's included in everything? Like when you go to church, do that in love? Like, like when you go to work, like do that in love? How about like when you're writing emails? Is that included in the everything? Maybe there's an exclusion clause. Or how about like when you're going through a pandemic and there's all these bizarre rules and you don't understand them and they contradict each other and they're going to change tomorrow uh, and they're one on one side of the river and they're other on the other side of the river and you've got to go through this pandemic. How do you, like, do you do that in love too? Like, is that included in everything? Like, what about, what about Duke fans? Is that included in everything? Like, like, do we, do we have to love Christian Leitner? I mean, that's a serious question. Do you, is he included in every, do everything in love? I don't, I don't. Or how about, or how about somebody on the opposite side of the political aisle? Is politics included in that? Do everything in love? I'm just, I'm not preaching anything right now. I'm just asking questions. So nobody can be mad at me. Or how about when you're talking to somebody from another ethnic background and they see things differently or experience things differently and their, their story is different and so they, they say things that maybe you don't understand and you don't get it and so you're going to dialogue with them, you're going to listen to them, you're going to talk to them. Do you, is, that, is that included in everything? Like do that in love too? So, so let's review where we've come so far. God is love. Love is our number one goal. It's the most important virtue. It's the dominant life principle. It's the greatest a commandment, it's the evidence that we are Jesus' disciples. It is the fulfillment of the law. It is the meaning of life. It's the purpose of life. And we aren't supposed to do anything without it. Like, never leave home without it. Do you remember the old American Express commercials? Do you remember, like, in the late 70s, they had travel, American Express traveler's checks? The young people are going, a tra- what's a traveler's check? I I, I can see it like, what about your check? Yeah, forget traveler's checks. They're like, check? What's a check? Uh, we used to have these things called travel. Never mind. Just look it up on the internet. Not right now. Um, and, and remember American Express used to say, never leave home without them, or uh, don't leave home without them. And then they switched to the credit card, never leave home without your American Express credit card, right? And now in our culture today, we say, never leave home without your mask, right? So, you know, never leave home without it. Well, here's what the Bible says. The the Bible says, forget the American Express. Take love everywhere you go. Everything you do, do it with love. Now, since it's so important, we we might want to know what it is and, and how to do it, right? Do you think? I mean, would you agree with me that if love is this important, we, we probably should know what love is and, and how to love. 
So, so we're beginning a little mini-series on love, coming out of this of Colossians 3, verse 14. We're going to talk about love for uh, maybe seven, eight weeks or so. It's the rest of the summer, we're going to be talking about love and what it is and what it means. Today's just the introduction, and so because of that, it, this by... Ne- it just, it's necessary that today's message is topical, but, but following series, uh, sermons in the series are going to be expository, meaning we're going to take a text that talks about love, and we're going to expound it and say, what do we learn about love in this text? What is it saying, and how do we do it? And I want to be very clear with you. I have a couple goals in this series, um, and I just want to give you my goals up front. My number one goal for this series is I want to love better. Like me, Tim, I I want to love better. I I don't want to just teach about love. I don't want to talk just theoretically about love. I actually want to love better. It's it's kind of like, you remember that old, you've heard me use this quote before, uh, from the old uh, jazz musician and composer, Duke Ellington. He was once asked to define rhythm, and his answer was classical. He said, if you got it, you don't need no definition." And if you ain't got it, ain't no definition going to help, right? Well, here's the deal. I I don't want to just give you a definition of love. I want to know the rhythms of love and and to actually experience it so that I become a person who loves. But I want want people to know me. I, I want to be known as somebody, man, Tim, he loves God and he loves people. That's how I want to be known. And so I would invite you to adopt that goal for this series too. If you, if you join me in that, say, yeah, I would like to learn how to love better too. Then, then join me in that praying, God, as we go through this, just open my eyes, open my heart to, to understand and, and to actually be a person who loves better. And the other thing is I want our church to love better. Because the enemy of our souls is targeting our love for each other and he's trying to divide our nation and he's trying to destroy our city and he's trying to break down our church with division and I am not okay with that. So this is a timely, timely word for us to learn how to love like God loves. So that we become a church that, that is known as, man, I tell you, those people at New Life, they love. They love God. They love each other. And it doesn't matter what your background is, they, they love. Tyler Edwards wrote a book called Zombie Church, which is kind of a weird title, I know. Breathing life back into the body of Christ. And, and, and he uses this analogy of like zombies look like they're alive, but they're the walking dead. And he says sometimes that's what you have in churches. And so he says this, bombs have kill radiuses, churches should have love radiuses. Anyone within 20 miles of a church should know it. And I would really like that to be true about us. That people know us as people who love. Man, New Life Church, man, those people love people. They love Jesus. I want to be known. So that's, that's one of my goals. So towards that end, let me just lay a little bit more groundwork in just the last few minutes that we have. Uh, these are some truths that are foundational for the rest of the series. Okay, we have to start with some very basic things. And please, since this is just an introduction, I can't say everything we're going to say in the series. Okay, so nobody write me an email and go, oh, what about this verse? Well, I, yeah, I've read that verse too. Uh, and and we're gonna, we might get to that. Okay, but, but these are just some foundational truths about love. Let me give you, to no one's surprise, there will be three. Number one. We love because God loves. We love because God, before we say anything else in this series about love, we must say this, it all starts with God. 1 John 4 verse 7, love comes from God. 
For God is love. So all love, that is, if it's godly love, truly love, and not just some sort of thing of the flesh that we call love, but it's not, all true, it comes from God. He is love. He is the source of love. He is the reason we have the ability to love. Because we're created in his image, we can reflect his love. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because God first loved us. So God's love is always prior to ours. He didn't start loving us on the day we prayed the sinner's prayer and said, okay, now we love you, Jesus. He didn't start loving us on that day. He doesn't love us because we earned it or merited it or because we're worthy. His love is what makes us worthy. You remember that song? Uh, this is from a previous generation. I think it was sung by Dean Martin, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you're nobody till somebody loves you. You remember that song? You're nobody. Till somebody, and, and the conclusion of that song is, so go find somebody so you can be somebody. Right? Well, here's the deal. According to the Bible, God loves you, and that makes you somebody. And you don't need somebody else to love you to make you somebody. God's love for you gives you incredible worth. It gives you incredible value. And God doesn't love you for what he gets out of it as if he needed something. He just loves you out of the overflow of his eternal and limitless love. See, see God has existed from eternity past in, in perfect loving relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The perfect loving relationship and a constant giving to one another. That is why we're relational beings who long for love. Because we're made in the image of a relational God who loves and when you get to the New Testament, you see each person of the Trinity, they're looking to the other one. I mean, the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And then Jesus says, I don't do anything except for what I see the Father do. And he's pointing people to glorify the Father. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and he's not pointing at himself. He's pointing to Jesus, reminding us of what Jesus said. They're constantly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, looking away to each other. That is what love is. It's not about me getting something. It's about me giving doing the best for the other person. We, and we don't do that through just, I'm going to try harder. I mean, it's willpower. No, it comes by, first of all, knowing and receiving God's love for us. First John 4, verse 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. We rely on his love for us first. And, and the only way we can love like this is to first receive and know God's love because you can't give what you don't have. You can't truly love others like God does until you receive God's love for you. And here's the deal. So much of Christianity in, in, out there in the world is like us just trying to do better, trying to act like Jesus instead of being transformed to be like him. Look, I, if I can just be honest with you, I, the way that first statement, my, my number one goal in life is... I, I wish that I could say that it's always, I could have always filled in that blank with love. Love God and love neighbor. But do you know what the reality is? For a certain chunk of my life, the honest truth was to fill in that blank, it would have been approval. My number one goal in life is for people to be happy with me. Which means it's really stupid to be a pastor if that's your number one goal. It's really dumb. But do you know what that produced in me? A, 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 a constant, I, gotta, I, I could never rest. 
I gotta run here, I gotta run here, I gotta, I gotta try to soften, I gotta, I gotta say, th- I gotta try to word things just right so a Republican doesn't get mad and a Democrat doesn't get mad. So I gotta word it just right, and, and, and like, I, I, it's like, it's like, that's hard to navigate sometimes. Because if, if your main thing is you want people to approve you, you gotta run around doing it. And you know what happens? Criticism is devastating. If you're running around trying to prove everybody all the time, it, it, it just it destroys you when you get criticized. So you know what? For the last however long this has been, every single morning, I'm, I'm doing something, a discipline, and, and I don't miss every I do this every single day. I start with what the Scripture says about who I am in Jesus and his love for me. Like from Jeremiah 31, that he has loved me with an everlasting love. Ha-ha! <laughs> You know what? If I'm really secure in who I am in the Lord, criticism doesn't devastate me anymore. And it doesn't. Now, don't test that, please. Don't, you know. I know. I saw Eddie Horde back there. He was like, oh, really? Listen, no, yeah. Yeah. But it really doesn't. You know why? Because his love has transformed me. I'm a different person now, actually. And if we're really going to be the kind of people who love, you got to be transformed by his love first. And then you can just give what you've been given. It just flows out of you. See, that's where our love should come from. It it is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Meaning when you're walking in the Spirit, you're led by the Spirit, you're full of the Spirit, part of the fruit that just comes out is love. So, So we love because God loves. Number two, love is a choice and an action. Now, this goes against what the world's idea of love is, because the world will tell you love is a feeling, love is something you fall into. And, and as we unpack this more in the series, you're going to see more and more scriptures that say love is not something that's uncontrollable. See, you can choose to love anyone. You're like, no, well, not, not anyone. Yeah, yeah, Jesus said love your enemy. Now, we're going to unpack that more in the future, but whatever he meant when he said that, it can't mean that you need to feel yummy in your tummy about your enemy. That's not what he's saying. I mean, love will affect your emotions, but it's not dictated by them. Love is more than a feeling. It's more than an emotion. It's more than words. I mean, 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I heard one, about one boyfriend, he was telling his girlfriend how much he loved her and he said I would die for you and she said you always say that you never do it (laughs) I'm sure he didn't know how to take that here's the point love is more than words remember the old DC talk song love is a verb okay it, 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 mean, it means that love is, requires action, and it's action that's the good for the one that is loved. It's so important for us to learn this if we're going to learn how to love because it takes, it's a choice, it's an action, and because of that, it's a skill you can develop. It, it's a habit you can get into. It's like, you know, in, in exercise and in sports, they have this thing they call muscle memory. You, you, you practice something over and over again so that you do it without thinking about it. Right, like uh, our boys played football growing up, and I remember being at one football practice and watching the linemen, and for an hour they practiced one step. 
for an hour. It was so boring, I just couldn't help but watch it. It just, I'm thinking, now why would they practice one step for an hour so that when they got in the game, they did it without thinking? Right, you practice that, so when you get in the game, you see, I, I want us to, to practice some habits of love so that when we get in the game, because here's what I think. I think, I think the world is going to become more challenging even than it is right now. So you know what we need to be doing now? We need to be practicing. Practicing love so that when the game, and the ball is snapped, and it will be snapped we, without thinking. We love. So finally, this will be the third and the last one. As we go on this journey of love, as we receive God's love and learn to love better, you need to know this. You're not on this journey alone. We have a guide. We have a teacher. We have a savior. And that's the third thing. Jesus teaches us how to love. Jesus is our Lord. He is our king. He is our savior. But there's also scriptures that speak to him about being our example. First Peter 2, uh, Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So he teaches us how to suffer, right? That's what First Peter 2 is saying. But it's not only that. He is our model. He's our example for love. First John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In other words, he teaches us what it means to love. He teaches us how to love. The cross is the supreme revelation of God's love for us. And this is how we know what love is. And when we watch him in the Gospels, and a lot of the texts we're going to be looking at are going to be right out of the Gospels and Jesus, and, and, and as well as 1 John and others. But uh, as we go through this, we're going to watch Jesus, how he treats people. How he loved the Father and, 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 and how he loved the poor and widows and orphans and the crippled and the outcasts. And how he even actually loved religious people. And so we learn to love from him. Two more stories and then I'm done. I was kind of rereading this week a book by Paul Miller entitled Love Walked Among Us, Learning to Love Like Jesus. And, and in the first chapter he tells two stories. He puts them side by side. And tells these two stories, one from the life of Jesus and one from the life of a very famous preacher. The story from the life of Jesus is found in, in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus has a great crowd of people around him, right? And this great crowd of people are walking with Jesus and Jesus is walking into the town of Nain. And as he's walking in, there's a big crowd walking out. It's actually a funeral procession and there's a woman there who's got to bury her son. Which is awful. But she's also a widow. And if you're reading the text, sometimes you read over stuff like that really quickly, but you have to put yourself in that culture. This means she has no man, which in that culture means she's going to be in poverty probably. Maybe have to beg for food, maybe have to be in a very undesirable profession. That's terrible, but that's the way it was. And so here she is, she's lost everything. She's mourning and she's weeping. And you add to that, you know, she's, she probably, because this is how it worked in this culture. We don't think about this because we just assume everybody had funeral homes like we have, right? But, but it, she has prepared his body for burial. Probably in her house, on the floor, cleaned him, dressed him. The mourners have come. 
They put him in, it, it, and we think of casket and coffin, really it was more like a basket that was open, and they put him in there, and they fold his arms, and, and it's like an open top, and they pick it up, and, they, and they're weeping as they go out. And according to ancient Jewish, kind of the way they did this in the first century, the women went first because it was like the women, you know, Eve sinned first and death came because of her sin, so they send the women first. So now you add shame to the sorrow she already experienced. And there's probably people there thinking, I wonder what she did to deserve to be alone. And so she is there leading out this procession with her dead son. And there's a crowd there. And here comes Jesus with his crowd. And the text says, he saw her. Not the dead guy. He saw her. And and the NIV says his heart went out to her. The the, the Greek actually says he had compassion on her. Love in action. And, and, And he went and he put his hand on the coffin, the casket. And they stopped. And he said, young man, get up. And he comes back to life. Like the dude was dead, and then he wasn't. And you would think this would be the perfect time to preach a sermon, right? I mean, my goodness. Like, listen, if, if, we, if I ever raise somebody from the dead here, I, you settle in. I'm preaching for a long time. I, and Because he doesn't have just one crowd. He's got two crowds. Double the crowd. So he's going to preach, right? No, you know what he does? He takes the young man by the hand, and he takes him to his mother, And the text says, he gave him back to his mother. What's he doing? He's healing her. He's providing for her. And here's the deal. In the moment when he could, I mean, right for a sermon, he cares about a person. Now compare that, and this is the last story I'll tell you, uh, by one of the most famous preachers of all time was a, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And he was great, awesome, I mean, Uh, known as the Prince of Preachers in the 19th century London, cabbies would collect fare, taking people to church. Like they in downtown London, they'd say, Spurgeon, Spurgeon, come here, Spurgeon. And they'd collect fare. Can you imagine doing this today? His, His sermons were printed on the front page of the London Times. Incredible speaker. But his wife tells a story. That one time he was going to this huge place to preach. It was a big auditorium. Lots of dignitaries were going to be there. And, you know, they, they took a little cab to, um, to get to the place. And when they got there, his mind was so much on the sermon, so much on the crowd, he jumps out and he just kind of pushes his way through the crowd, kind of leaving her to kind of fend for herself. And the crowd was so big, she was kind of getting pushed around. And, and the dignitaries and the, and the officials met him and whisked him on in behind the stage. And she was getting pushed. And, and she got very upset about this as you can imagine. So she just went home. I think he got off easy, actually. <laughs> she, she went home. And she talks to her mother, and her mother said, listen, you, you didn't just marry anybody. You married a man of God. He's got he's to put God first, not you. And so she's like, okay. When he gets home, he's upset that she left. And the mom goes out and says, hey, your wife's kind of upset with you. And he's like, okay. So he goes in, he listens to her, and then he says, well, yeah, I have to serve God first. And so God got dragged into it as the reason he ignored his wife. Now, here's what's interesting to me. The two situations are very similar. You've got a religious leader 
You've got a woman who's hurting and you've got a big crowd. In both cases. What Jesus did was, I'm going to step away from the crowd and I'm going to minister to this one person who's hurting. He saw her. He had compassion. His heart went out to her and he raised the boy from the dead. In the other case, you don't have that. Now, when I was reading that chapter, do you know what was going through my mind? Who am I more like? Now, I'm not ripping on Spurgeon. Nobody get mad at me who's Spurgeon fans. I'm not ripping on him. I think he's awesome. But here's the deal. There have been times I have been like Jesus, like that. And there have been times I've been more like Spurgeon on that. I have. And what I want is to be like Jesus. I want to see the people who are hurting. I want my heart to go out to them. And I want to say, okay, the crowd, the sermon, that's important. But right now, we need to bring the dead back to life. So what would your answer to the question be? Who are you more like?